From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Right now, let's switch gears. We'll take a look at what some of those global trade issues are doing for markets. We welcome Louis Lau, Portfolio Manager and Member of the Emerging Markets Investment Committee at Brandis Investment Partners. He joins us on the phone from San Diego. Louis, thanks so much for joining us. You know, just those headlines from the president, you know, talking about global trade and, and what's going on with global trade. Clearly, the uncertainties created by the uncertainty of global trade really weighing on markets. How are you kind of factoring that into your investment outlook? Thanks, Paul, for having me on. Good morning, everybody. Um, just to kind of set the stage, you know, we're long-term value investors at Brandis, and our approach is really to focus on the fundamental economic worth of the companies uh, that we invest in, uh, and we call that the intrinsic value of these companies. And our approach is to purchase them at a at an attractive discount to the intrinsic values. And within that context, um, a lot of these geopolitical events, trade events that you mentioned have created numerous opportunities, uh, whether it's um, the U.S.-China trade frictions that we're seeing or the renegotiation of NAFTA or even Brexit. I mean, these have created um, opportunities where stocks are selling at attractive discounts to their long-term fair value. Okay, can, um, you, give us, and, can you give us some examples? Yeah. So some of those examples would be, um, you know, the uh, Mexican real estate companies, uh, or the fibras that we call them uh, have been selling at uh, big discounts, large dividend yields. Um, and you know, some of those uh, companies that have been affected would be technology companies um, in in China. Um, so those are some of the things that we've looked at. Um, there's also a lot of other examples. But really, um, Lisa, the um, key thing to bear in mind is we're not trying to predict particular outcomes. Uh, we don't think that anybody can. I think our approach is really to uh, buy uh, when we feel that a worst-case scenario has been priced in. Uh, some days, you know, these stocks will trade as if there's never going to be a trade deal. And then on other days, the market is euphoric and it's pricing in a very good outcome. And in, on those uh, occasions, uh, we're going to be lightening up the position or we stop buying. But uh, if a worst-case scenario is priced in, then we're active in the market um, using a flexible and nimble approach um, to investing in these companies. So, Louis, I know you recently took a uh, trip, business trip, through Asia uh, over the summer. Give us a sense of some of your key takeaways there, because clearly, you know, that uh, the uncertainties of trade between the U.S. and China, you know, really key to, uh, I think, investors' psyches now. Yes, um, I was in uh, seven cities in Asia a couple of months ago, and I think the striking thing to note is that, you know, if you go to mainland China, whether it's Shanghai, Beijing, or Shenzhen, you know, the the atmosphere is very different. Uh, I think there's a, a feeling of calm. There's a feeling of, 
you know, that the economy has the capability to withstand some of these external shocks. Um, so the, the, the feeling that we get from mainland China is very different. But across the border in Hong Kong, um, I witnessed firsthand uh, some of the protests that have been uh, taking place and the disruptions to normal business operations. Um, and just kind of to Lisa's point earlier, this has uh, given way to some opportunities in the retail industry, uh, some of the banks uh, in Hong Kong, you know, showing very good value. Um, and we're not exactly sure how um, the protest will end or, or how it's going to conclude. But if you look at the history, these protests have been episodic. They come and go. Uh, there's going to be some kind of resolution over, you know, the shorter or medium term. And, uh, you know, that has created opportunities as well. You know, I'm wondering if there has to be a base case when it comes to some of these geopolitical uh, occurrences when you're making decisions about whether something is undervalued or overvalued. Because, you know, I mean, at any given point, the 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 outcome could be completely bifurcated and, and lead to completely bifurcated market results. So how what, what is your sort of base case uh, for the next 12 months? Yeah, I think the base case is that the U.S.-China relationship, you know, whether it's the economic relationship, whether it's the trade relationship, is too important for the global economy for there to be, you know, a sustained adverse outcome, right? So you can see that uh, you know, particularly for the U.S. point of view, you know, the tariffs are starting to have a negative impact. So the trade war has kind of shifted to other areas, right, looking at, um, you know, American capital going into Chinese capital markets, things like that. So the, the, the exact form of these tensions can change, the shape can shift. But then the longer term uh, base case or over the next 12 months is that um, the, the relationship is too important. There will be some kind of re- resolution or de-escalation and that is kind of the base case that we use um, to value some of the companies. And then if there is a significant downdraft or deviation that is priced in that we don't think will hold over the next three or five years, then that would be a buying opportunity. Of course, you know, our approach uh, would allow for some of these um, estimates uh, to change. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if the information and situation changes, it, it's dynamic. So we're not holding to any one particular scenario, but trying to have a flexible uh, approach and uh, factor in some of the, you know, any lasting developments into our base case. So it's interesting because you say that this sort of base case is, is that, you know, we do get something. I do wonder, though, what we're seeing right now is the lack of certainty itself weighing on economic growth and activity. How do you factor that in? You know, it, it's uh, really kind of the deviation from, uh, you know, the base rate of growth, right? So China should um, grow at about 6%, maybe that decelerates by 25 or 50 basis points uh, in the next 12 months, and, and the U.S. maybe trend growth rate is kind of around 2%. So there's certain base case um, estimates that, uh, you know, the markets are looking for, and, you know, um, uh, some of these events have a very short-term negative impact on some of that, uh, some of the trend growth rates, right? So the base case hasn't really changed. It's just that um, there's a lot of short-term volatility and geopolitical events that can cause oscillations around that base case. And is these oscillations that create market volatility that give rise to opportunity. Louis Lau, thank you so much for being with us. Louis Lau is Portfolio Manager and member of the Emerging Markets Investment Committee at Brandis Investment Partners in lovely San Diego, where I do not think that they are preparing for a nor'easter like we are no. here.
let's talk retirement. Let's talk about whether uh, you want to do it and whether you can do it ever. Let's speak with Josh Jelinski. He's president of Jelinski Advisory Group, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, you have a new book, Retirement Reality Check. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and assume it's not a reality check, that you've got plenty and you're great. Well, it could be both. You could have a lot and not know what to do with it. You could have uh, a significant amount saved and not have a tax plan, not have a strategy to convert your assets to income when you're retired. So there's the reality check for those who have money. And then there's the, the reality check for those who've not saved, you know, 10 to 15% in their 401k or who've, who've come in a lot of money due to maybe a sale of a business. But uh, there is a savings dearth. Fidelity came out with a report, you know, the average 401k is 50 grand uh, to their name, which is uh, shocking. It is. So, Josh, uh, you know, I have my children entering the workforce right now. And the, I think the probably hopefully the best piece of advice I gave them was 401k. Start it today. Maximize your contributions. What percentage of people would you say are really not prepared for retirement financially? I would say about 90 percent. Wow. Yeah. Because I saw that statistic recently that a big percentage of Americans could not come up with a four hundred million. Uh, sorry, four hundred dollar just emergencies or you know a thousand dollars for emergencies. I remember so, that. I think it was like ninety three percent of Americans. Yeah. So, what is the most important advice you have for people as they think about retirement? You know, whether they're young or whether they're maybe closer to retirement. Number one, just start. Save ten to fifteen percent of your paycheck. A lot of people they stop at fifty, fifty five, and they go, oh, "Well, I have fifty grand. I'll never amount to anything, so I'm not going to save anything." And if you save, you know, 10 to 15% of your pay. Now, we, we, we do have a section for millennials, people in their 30s, 20s, 40s, to start now, and then to do it in a tax-smart manner. In the book, we have 11 tax-smart tips uh, for how to capitalize on the Trump tax plan and other things. I like to be a pain in the neck. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the other side of this. There are all these people screaming that too many people over in China save People are talking about the savings rate and how it could be a problem if people aren't actually putting their money into the economy and if they're not necessarily investing in themselves. And I'm not talking about incurring more student debt, uh, but making life easier, for example, if you've got children so that you can continue to work, even if it means less income in that short period. How do you sort of square those sort of conflicting feelings of sort of the dynamism of the economy in the near term uh, versus being prudent for the long term. Well, that's great. We actually have a macroeconomic approach to people's money where we treat money less like a personal checkbook and more like a macro economy in that we have three key focuses. We want to focus on asset protection, savings and growth. But yeah, there is a con conflicting thing where when you're looking at the macroeconomic data, we want people to be spending their money. But then in reality, people have to avoid buying stupid stuff. I mean, if you think about today, people have Netflix subscriptions and cable bills. They have cell phone bills and they, I mean, and they have this subscription and that, you know, they, they got to cut the cord though. I mean, it's good for the macroeconomy, <laughs> bad for the microeconomy. So what do people, you know, people are, are living longer these days, uh, Josh. So did they need, they, I guess they, just, they need more money. So, I mean, is there a sense of kind of what people need today for a decent retirement versus maybe a generation or two ago? I think people a generation or two ago spent a lot less. So they need, needed less to retire. They also had pensions. A whole section on the book in, in my book, Retirement Reality Check, is on how to convert your assets to income. And we have a lot of people who don't have a pension, so they need 
greater assets because they have to convert their 401ks to, to a pension-like stream of investment income when they retire. Definitely. What age do you think people really ought to retire at this point or expect to retire? Barring Close. some boon from a wonderful period in their business life. Maybe, uh, I don't know, 67, 70, but more and more people are working longer. 67, 78, 78. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, more and more people are practicing the phrase, welcome to Walmart. They're finding joy. A lot of people, I mean, if you look philosophically, even back in biblical days, you know, the Bible mentions no mention of the concept retirement. That's because everybody was dead at 70. So, <laughs> and Social Security came out when the average life expectancy was, I think, like 52. And so you were typically, like in today's age, it would be 80. Right. If, if we went back to the original concept of the social safety net. So the social safety net, I mean, what percentage of the U.S. population do you think relies on that? Probably too much. I think more and more retirees are solely, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing people, you know, call my radio show because we have a show and they, I mean, there's like, I would say 90% are reliant on social security. Boomers did a very poor job saving for retirement. And, and that's the importance of a retirement reality check. So you can spend all your money without going broke in retirement. Right. Interesting. Josh Jelinski, thanks so much for joining us. Josh is president of Jelinski Advisory Group, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, talking about his new book, Retirement Reality Check. And it's uh, Look, I, it's so important to save early. I, I think that I'm coming at this. I always was, you know, putting stuff aside and preparing right. for the future. And I think it's important to do it. I, I think there needs to be a balance, though, too, right? I mean, yep. But I, I, don't, I guess that most people don't do. Just uh, yeah, you know, everybody, I'm, I'm sure everybody has their, their different financial position. But I think that, again, as I try to, you know, impart to my uh, children as they enter the workforce is the importance of saving for retirement 401k uh, and how it's such a powerful savings tool uh, that a lot of corporations, corporate America, in the absence of a defined pension plan, uh, it's really the way you have to go. So very interesting. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Well, here at our Bloomberg World Headquarters in New York City today, we are hosting the Bloomberg Canadian Fixed Income Conference, uh, bringing together leaders and financiers looking at the Canadian market. Joining us today is Rod Phillips, the Finance Minister for Ontario, Canada, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Rod, thanks so much for being with us. Give us a sense of, you know, our financial, we, you know, our economy here in the U.S., you know, it's chugging along pretty well, two, two and a half percent, but slowing. Give us a sense, kind of the economic backdrop facing Canada these days. 
Yeah, Paul and Lisa, thanks for having me. It's great to uh, be on Bloomberg. You know, Ontario and Canada generally are um, our significant uh, connection in terms of economically is to the United States. So, so as your economy goes, that uh, that uh, certainly supports growth for uh, for Ontario. A lot of people don't realize, but uh, 19 states were the number one trading partner. So, so when we see uh, the kind of hot economy we have in the United States, we're seeing that replicated uh, in Ontario. We have uh, you know our unemployment rate uh, just the last month was 5.3 percent, which by our standards, is is fairly low. We have 230,000 jobs since last June, a year ago June, that were, were created. So, so you're seeing a growing economy, uh, particularly um, hot from a development point of view. Uh, you know, there are 420 cranes uh, across North America. 120 of them, uh, big construction cranes, are in the GTA. So, a lot of that kind of growth and development comes a lot from a lot of uh, very positive immigration statistics we have. So, GTA, I'm going to just infer, is the uh, General Toronto area. Is That's that right. correct? Yeah, the Greater Toronto. The great, oh, there we go, not general. Uh, the greater Toronto area. I'm wondering about Toronto and the housing market in particular because there's been a lot written about how high prices had gotten and how people were getting priced out of the region. Can you tell us a little bit about where we are? We have seen a little bit of a resurgence there uh, with respect to uh, some of your measures to discourage foreigners from just buying for investment. You know, there's, there's no question affordability had become an issue uh, in the greater Toronto area. We've uh, brought in some policies to uh, to free up the capacity to develop, obviously being sensitive about environmental concerns and otherwise. Uh, some of the some of the measures that both the federal government had taken and the previous government to to, uh, you know, to limit that kind of growth. Some of some of them have been helpful. Uh, some have gotten in the way of, of greater supply. We really see this as a supply issue. And so, uh, so uh, you know, we've been trying to uh, to encourage about somewhere around 45% of all the immigrants that come to uh, to Canada uh, come to Ontario. And the biggest portion of those come to the greater Toronto area. Um, so that's fantastic from an economic point of view in terms of, of giving us uh, a great base to grow the economy from. But, but, you know, keeping housing affordable is one of the things that we're really focused on. How much pushback have you gotten from residents in Toronto with the development? Because this is always the push-pull in cities, right? Don't overdevelop us, don't crowd our schools, and yet housing is unaffordable, so what are you going to do? Yeah, it, it is always that tension. Um, everybody always wants to have the last new house in a particular neighborhood, and and uh, but but I think this is a this is a an area of our country that has has grown dramatically because we've been fairly effective at, at integrating newcomers into into uh, into the economy and otherwise. Um, again, that uh, you know, as long as there's jobs and economic opportunity, um, it is uh, it's it's just net positive for most people. But listen, we are we've got ninety billion dollars we're spending on transit and transportation infrastructure. You know, that's specifically focused on dealing with the congestion that inevitably comes with this. Um, we have, as I said, an aggressive uh, policy around making sure there's more housing supply. You know, it was an urgent need of those things happening. And then when it comes to things like education and health care, big investments there in the tens of billions of dollars to make sure that the infrastructure is in place. So, Rod, the, those immigration statistics you quote are very interesting to me. How has immigration into Ontario and Canada broadly changed over the last several years with the Trump administration and kind of the changing policies here in the USA? You know, it has uh, it has definitely uh, caused a couple of effects on the uh, in terms of uh, the uh, side of in terms of refugees. We we had a, a, through Quebec and through Ontario an increase in people uh, leaving because of some of the Trump 
policies. Um, but I'll say also on the side of, of some of the most skilled and valuable immigrants, we've we've seen an uptick in terms of interest, uh, whether it comes to our universities or our high tech firms. We have quite an AI hub uh, in uh, in Toronto. In fact, tomorrow I'm hosting an AI roundtable with a number of uh, of local companies here in New York uh, that uh, that are looking because of our education system, because of the number of data scientists we have expanding uh, the uh, operations they have in Ontario. And uh, and that uh, I think that's about the uh, the quality of life that we have, uh, as well as you know as having capital markets. I mean, as you guys would know, Toronto is the number two capital market uh, in North America. So there's access to capital for a lot of entrepreneurs. Rod Phillips, thank you so much for joining us. The Honorable Rod the Phillips. Honorable I love Rod that. Phillips. that. I want to be called the Honorable Lisa And you get Bromwich. that for life, right? I, I love that you love that. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you make your, your family call you the Honorable? Yeah, only on weekends. <laughs> <laughs> well, does, does, do people really call you? Do they call you Honorable Phillips or uh, Honorable Rod? Usually just Rod, but uh, but uh, but uh, it's uh, you know it's one of the you know there's there's so many benefits to being in politics. Uh, definitely, <laughs> yeah. definitely one of them is the title. The Honorable the Honorable yeah. Paul Sweeney. Yeah, I can live with that. I think that works. You think well. so? Yes, that exactly. works better than the Honorable Lisa Broadway's. That does not roll <laughs> off the tongue at all. <laughs> Rod Phillips, Finance Minister, uh, Ontario, Canada, joining us here in a Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Let's talk Puerto Rico, since this has been a hotbed of activity on the investment side over the past couple of years. As people try to figure out now after the hurricane, how rebuilding the island will affect its finances. Remember, it did have to file for bankruptcy restructuring. Joining us now, Ricardo Alvarez-Diaz. He is founder and principal of Alvarez-Diaz and Villalon. Uh, He is based in San Juan, Puerto Rico, but he is joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Ricardo, uh, you focus a lot on the rebuilding effort. Just can we start with how is it going? Well, it's going a lot better than what a lot of people are, are hearing. I mean, uh, the challenge we have, of course, is the um, the uncertainty of what's going to happen with the funding itself. I mean, because we we have been um, assigned a, set, a certain amount of funding for the island, federal funding, CDBGR funding specifically, which is a um, community development block grants uh, from HUD and FEMA. Um, and from the hot side, uh, the first tranche of money has come in and, and things are starting to move a little uh, fast. But at the same time, it, the reality is that that's $1.5 billion out of a $42 billion promise. So there's a lot to be done. So give us a sense of you know, how far back the island has recovered since the, the hurricanes. If there's a percentage, just give us a sense of how far back it's come and how far it left it has to go. Well, I would say that uh, 85% has, has come back up to where we were before the hurricane. And that's not saying much because we were cha- a challenge at, before the hurricane when it comes to infrastructure. So just because we're 85% there doesn't mean that we're great. It just means that we're back to where we were. Uh, where we need to focus now is where we're going to want to be. And that's where uh, the uh, infrastructure uh, investments uh, and how we plan the next 15 and 30 years of Puerto Rico are going to matter. There's a big question, Mark, about who's going to live there. And one thing that we kept reading articles about was the exodus of people from the island after the hurricane. Has that sort of stabilized? Are you starting to see population growth even? Well, not growth. uh, But after the hurricane, uh, we lost uh, around 400,000 people. Um, Now, that's 
typical. If you, if you look at what happened in Katrina, that was it was around two hundred fifty thousand people, and it's it, it's a sim it's similar to what happened in Puerto Rico because of the fact that schools were not open and families needed totally. to totally. Yeah. But that that was a significant proportion of the entire island's population. And which, Absolutely, and, and, and it's what like twenty five percent or something. Or well, no, 15%? there's three point two million people in Puerto okay. Rico. All right. So, but but by now around three hundred fifty have has returned now. So we are down maybe seventy five thousand. Uh, from the people that left originally after the hurricane. But this matters a lot because the island has more than $70 billion of debt. It needs a certain level of economic activity to Absolutely. support that, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it matters enormously. That's why one of the challenges we've seen with the um, the fiscal board itself is that uh, they, they have been focused rightly on trying to uh, you know manage the fiscal situation in Puerto Rico, but at the same time, there's um, a Title V out of the PROMESA law that is focused on um, economic development. And part of the problem is that they has it, we have not been focused enough when it comes to that with economic development from the side of the federal government. Now, private sector is a little different, uh, and and that's something we need to talk about because I, I find myself um, always talking about the bond situation and what happened to Puerto Rico before the hurricane, um, and that was basically the, the the local government. I mean, there's a lot of robust private sector businesses, but one of the challenges we we we've dealt with is. You know, and I, and by the way, I say this all the time. I, I, we should get every single private sector company like myself, uh, our company that has thrived in the last 13 years in Puerto Rico, should get a, an award because <laughs> after 13 years of recession, it's a big Here deal. There you go. Yeah, thank you. I just got an award. Um, uh, but at the same time, what I want to focus in that the private sector is looking at something that maybe um, uh, people should be, should be listening uh, to. Uh, before the hurricane, uh, companies were losing trust uh, and faith in the island. Uh, after the hurricane, even though let's remi- remember that over 3,000 people died, and that's more people than 9-11. Um, but what that did is that a lot of com- we, we got a lot of attention worldwide. Uh, that wasn't only about the fact that we were, you know, bankrupt. <laughs> and, and people were interested in, oh, what's Puerto Rico? What's happening in Puerto Rico? And people are doubling down. Some companies that have invested in assets are really reinvesting in the island, especially in hospitality and real estate um, Oh, of course, knowing that there's going to be some serious federal funding coming in to uh, reinvest in, in long-term infrastructure. All right, so give us a sense of that federal funding. I think you mentioned $42 billion. It's been now a couple of years since the hurricanes. What's right. what's the timing and what has to happen for that money to be released? Well, uh, a couple of things. When it, If we focus on HUD specifically, um, uh, almost $20 billion have been assigned to Puerto Rico, but out of those $20 billion, only $1.5 billion has been disbursed. And out of the $1.5 billion, around $200 million have been actually utilized. What that tells you is that um, there's a lot of money that needs to be brought in and a lot of um, uh, investments that need to be focused in. Now, what are the next steps? Uh, HUD needs to, um, uh, Dr. Carson and the team at HUD needs to, they need to sign um, a, what's called a grant agreement for the next $8.2 billion. And that hasn't been done. Uh, and, and, you know, there's many reasons why. Uh, now we have a monitor that was imposed on Puerto Rico. Um, and as an investor, I, I believe that having a monitor gives a, a, a certain degree of confidence to the investors. But at the same time, it has been very slow. Um, I believe that it, it, it will get a lot better first and second quarter next year. But the, the, um, the, the process has been, uh, sadly, like a turtle, very slow. 
So I want to talk about, from your side, you, you work on development, correct? Yes. Okay. So how much uh, interest do you get from international investors given the government track record? I mean, I, I feel yeah. an incredible amount of defensiveness. Guys, we're different. We're the private sector. We're going to manage it differently. We're not bankrupt. <laughs> I mean, do you still have to make that pitch every single time you talk to anyone? Of course. Uh, listen, it's like everything. I mean, I, I think one of the biggest successes we've had, and I'm um, not only the president of Alvarez Diaz and Villalón, we, I also so I uh, was appointed by the governor as, uh, as a member of Invest Puerto Rico. So my job is to get out there and, and, and try to bring investments to the island. And, and, and the thing I get all the time is that when we get people down there, they're in shock in a positive way. They're surprised. They had no idea. I mean, listen, only 35% of the people in the mainland knew Puerto Ricans were U.S. citizens before the hurricane. So there, there's a lot of misconception and lack of knowledge about a, a, a line. And, and, if, uh, and by the way, it doesn't help when you have situations within government, either number one, being bankrupt, and number two, when this summer we've had a, a, a governor stepping down. Uh, so, you know, we are dealing with some of those issues, but I, I, I think that that's okay because it's just the beginning of what we're gonna see in the next couple of years, uh, uh, that you're gonna see uh, a Puerto Rico that's gonna uh, start to come out a lot better. And, and I don't know how you, how you guys feel about this, but in general, I'm almost more excited about the private sector than the public sector. So when you see the private sector starting to be interested, it's a good thing. Right. Ricardo Alvarez Diaz, founder and principal of Alvarez Diaz and Villalon from San Juan, Puerto Rico, joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, giving us the latest on Puerto Rico, uh, what is going on there in the uh, rebuilding process that continues after hurricanes. Uh, Irma and Maria devastated the island uh, several years ago, uh, getting an update there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.